Hello and welcome to Sumona Region Radio. Sumona Region Radio is a weekly review of politics and culture covering the whole region of South and West Asia and Northern Africa. My name is Ankine Antaram, here with fellow collective member and co-host Adrina Gregorian. We welcome you to our show this afternoon. On the anniversary of the 44-day Karabakh War of 2021 between Armenia and Azerbaijan, Today we assess the world, look at the role of civil society, and analyze the South Caucasus region. We are joined by Anna Ohanian. Anna Ohanian is the Richard B. Finnegan Distinguished Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Stony College, and a two-time Fulbright Scholar in the South Caucasus. Anna is the editor of Russia Aboard, Driving Regional Fracture in Post-Communist Eurasia and Beyond and her latest, The Neighborhood Effect, The Imperial Roots of Regional Fracture in Post-Communist Eurasia. Professor Ohanian is also a non-resident senior scholar in the Russia and Eurasia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Welcome, and thank you for joining us, Professor Ohanian. Oh, it's a pleasure, Ankine. To understand the significance of this conflict, give us a sense of the strategic importance of the South Caucasus region where Armenia and, and Azerbaijan are located? Sure. South Caucasus can be considered as part of this post-communist world. That regional description is somewhat changing because with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War in the late 80s, this region essentially opened up to new players. Now Turkey is a contender in this region. China emerging from the east is also going through uh, this region, not as present as Turkey, for example, and Iran. But the region is important from the so-called Kremlin angle. The Western policymakers tend to look at this region primarily as an extension of Russia. And in that respect, if looking at Russia as a force that is challenging this rules-based world order, we have democratic declines, I would argue that supporting democratization and connectivity and stability in Russia's peripheries, bottom up, is a very important and understudied, underappreciated way of managing Russia's presence in world politics. The region is also going through some pretty significant shifts. I mentioned Turkey's sort of ambitions in this region and Turkey-Azerbaijan alliance is much, much stronger than it was, uh, let's say 10 years ago. And then you have European Union that has been present, but not in terms of Europe in general with all kinds of socioeconomic support, Europe's sort of very uh, specific focus targeted support of Georgia and then Armenia, Russia security orientation, all of these forces continue this phenomenon of fracturing the region, disrupting it, which at the end of the day is not helping in terms of creating stability, makes it difficult for new young democracies such as Armenia and Georgia to survive. And it's not helping with regional resiliency. And very specifically related as to why this region matters for the United States and for the West, I mentioned already, there are three countries 
countries in this region, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, two of these countries, Georgia and Armenia, are nascent young democracies. Armenia's democratic breakthrough was in 2018 through a nonviolent peace protest, very much shaped and informed by Gandhi's thinking, Martin Luther King's strategies of civic disobedience was applied here. So at this moment, unresolved conflicts make the democratic consolidation very difficult. President Biden has been talking about democratic declines and that the United States is back and will be defending democracies, creating summit of democracies. But the very important step in supporting existing democracies that are there and preventing uh, authoritarian resurgence that is ongoing, very specific way to do it is supporting these clusters of democratic dyads that have been emerging. Armenia, Azerbaijan is one. Belarus was not successful, but there is already very active civil society movement there next to Ukraine. Autocrats do know that authoritarianism strengthens regionally, and it's a lesson that democratic countries also need to be learning as well, keeping that in mind. Academic studies also show that new democratic breakthroughs strengthen in those regions where there are more democracies. And in this case, uh, with Armenia's most recent democratic breakthrough, that poll has strengthened. So number one, again, the strategic importance of South Caucasus to sum up this component in terms of managing Russia, supporting stability, democratization in its peripheries is number one, supporting connectivity in general in this continent, especially looking at the rise of China, the traditional sort of the lazy answer to geopolitical significance of this region for the West is usually taken to be Azerbaijan's oil industry, like Azerbaijan is providing energy to parts of Europe, etc. But the energy markets are shifting. So similar to other countries in the Middle East that are reliant on natural resources, oil and gas in this case, that are not modernized, that their economies are vulnerable to this, with the shifting greening of the energy markets worldwide, this region, Azerbaijan actually is very vulnerable to a political instability. So supporting the neighborhood, supporting the region with these long-term democratization in mind, with long-term connectivity and economic development is in the interest of these regions, but also uh, in the interest of the West. And the South Caucasus, all these countries you mentioned, are adjacent to the Middle East. Um, how do the geopolitics of the two regions interact and how do they influence each other? That's a very, very good question. And I think the connection in the case of Armenia, between Armenia and Armenian communities in Syria, Lebanon and Iraq, all of those wars had direct impact on Armenia with uh, now refugees, Armenian communities from those countries found their way to Armenia. And keep in mind that the Armenian community in these countries actually were there in the first place as a result of the genocide. So they were settled and they had to basically be uprooted again. But uh, if we expand the Middle East in general, Middle East itself actually went through the Arab Spring, Middle East and North Africa. And here you have Tunisia that remained the only sort of surviving but fragile democracy. Uh, the significance for this region and for the South Caucasus is that 
that actually South Caucasus had a stronger civil society. So there are lessons from South Caucasus for the Middle East. There are reasons as to why the Arab Spring was not as effective partly because of the weakness of civil society in this region. In the South Caucasus, the picture was very different. And if we expand the Middle East in general, look at Afghanistan and the Southwest Asia in general, United States pull out of Afghanistan and in such a spectacular way, signals that these countries really need to build their local regional security uh, mechanisms in order to address issues. Uh, Afghanistan is now a failed state. We'll see what happens with, with governance under Taliban regime. But the rise of insurgents, the presence of terrorism in Afghanistan definitely will be a destabilizer. So the need for the region to come together and build security provision mechanisms is critical for South Caucasus in light of what we see happening in the Middle East. I could just very quickly add uh, simply that I've spent some time the past several years looking at the imperial roots of contemporary armed conflict in, in parts of Eurasia. And keep in mind that Middle East was part of the Ottoman Empire, was taken over as protectorate by Great Britain and France. After World War I, South Caucasus was the Transcaucasia in Russia's neighborhood. So what we see with the end of the Cold War is the resurgence of Turkey and Russia as post-imperial or neo-imperial players that are trying to maintain influence over these regions, perhaps using different different instruments than they did uh, at the end of 19th and 20th century, early 20th centuries. And Anna, remind our audience uh, about the 44-day war last year, why it started, its historical background. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of it? Sure. The 44-day war in Nagorno-Karabakh broke out in the midst of the pandemic. I think this was really a jarring fact to many. It broke out at the end of September and it ended with Russia brokered trilateral agreement between Russia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. That agreement was signed on November 9th. Um, this is the second war in this conflict. Nagorno-Karabakh was an Armenian majority administrative entity inside Soviet Azerbaijan. It was essentially created as part of, I'm sorry, it was actually historically much deeper as an entity. It was, it has been changed hands throughout centuries, but in a Soviet Union, it was part of the Soviet Azerbaijan. While Soviet authorities have practiced a lot of sort of divide and conquer policies, arbitrary drawing of boundaries. I mean, if you look at the map of the South Caucasus, the arbitrary divisions, ethnic groups being divided, every region has this marker. So Azerbaijan with Armenian majority uh, population was part of Soviet Azerbaijan. Some researchers argue that it was done for practical reasons, simply because the connectivity was better with Azerbaijan, economic connections, etc. I'm not convinced by that argument, simply just looking at how Nahijevan was separated with Azerbaijan, uh, even though, again, that also had a significant Armenian uh, population there. So 
that entity existed in Soviet Azerbaijan. There were regular claims, efforts by the Armenian community in Nagorno-Karabakh to be united, to be joined with Armenia. These calls have been made during Soviet years, and the Soviet authorities uh, never indulged it. But these conflicts dates back as pre-Soviet roots. It uh, very South Caucasus, uh, Transcaucasia, that at the time it was known uh, as uh, was one of the provinces one of the regions of the Russian Empire, and the ethnic populations were pretty mixed. Armenian community was pretty spread out as well. There were divisions between socioeconomic divisions that I don't want to go too much into detail, but the roots of this conflict were already there. But at the same time, there were also intercommunal conflict management, peace building efforts that were already there. There were communal leaders, Hovanas Tumanyan, uh, an Armenian poet has been very active in working towards preventing uh, communal violence between the groups. Soviet Union, when it emerged, it did emerge as a centralized top-down construct. Very long story short, after the spite attempts by the Armenian community to be joined uh, with Armenia, uh, they did not work. Nagorno-Karabakh conflict erupted um, in the twilight years of the Soviet Union. There were calls and a referendum that was carried out in Nagorno-Karabakh that wanted to separate a referendum that Azerbaijani residents in Nagorno-Karabakh did not participate in. There was communal violence of Armenians, not in Nagorno-Karabakh, but in cities in Baku. There were larger pockets of Armenian communities in uh, cities in Azerbaijan. Sumgait is perhaps the most uh, well-known, more known case of pogroms on Armenian communities that essentially took the conflict into a completely different level and made it very difficult for the Soviet authorities to manage then. With the Soviet collapse, the conflict became internationalized. So this time Armenia was trying to support and help the Armenian communities in Nagorno-Karabakh, but the new Armenian government changed its strategy and started essentially calling for national self-determination of Armenians in in, uh, Azerbaijan, in Nagorno-Karabakh. So there was a peace process that was created and is really significant and needs to be said. The ceasefire was negotiated by Russia, but there was a OSC Minsk group, which is a regional organization involved in minority protection, among other things. That Minsk group at the time of the Second World War included as key co-chairs United States, France, and Russia. So this war, the Second War, in the First War, Armenians ended up uh, in control of Nagorno-Karabakh entity, also the seven surrounding regions of the entity inside Azerbaijani territory, which Armenians thought that they would use as bargaining chips. The peace process lasted 1994 all the way till 2000, but political, for, we can go into detail as to why successive peace, uh, the negotiation attempts were not successful. Both states were very young in some respects, and the conflict became used as a way to promote authority, to maintain authoritarianism. The regimes were using it for their survival. But the point is that there was a peace process, but in parallel, Azerbaijan, Aliyev uh, Jr., he inherited this seat from his father. When he did come to power, he his rhetoric has been very militaristic from the beginning. He used the peace process, essentially militarized, and never uh, had offered a plan as to what he would do if, our, let's say, Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh, even if 
if they stayed in, agreed to stay inside Azerbaijan, what would that look like? So uh, he essentially bulldozed through a peace process, and that's really significant. It doesn't matter how fragile that peace process was. This was significant. We were asking about what are the geopolitical stakes of this region. The fact that this conflict ended, at least now, through militarized, violent, coercive method. This heightens insecurity in these regions and creates the really wrong signal for uh, Ukraine, where there is a Donbass conflict and uh, militarization. There are actually some scholars and analysts that after the the Nagorno-Karabakh war was waging, they started advocating that that's exactly what Ukraine should be doing, using militarized measures to take uh, Donbass back. Uh, So I I think this second war was tragic um, for a variety of reasons. All wars are tragic, but the fact that this time around there was a peace process that instead of deepening it, that structure, looking for a solution, militarized approaches were applied under what I call the the trap of territorial integrity without any protection for minorities. Essentially, that was very problematic and creates all kinds of instability for other conflict regions, whether it's two breakaway regions, Abkhazia and South Ossetia in Georgia, or the Donbass region in Ukraine. Although I have to say, I don't think Georgians will or have considered militarized approach to taking these two entities back. The engagement, trying to offer an alternative to this entity's alternative to Russia, because Russia recognized that they're pretty much Russian protectorates. So I think militarized approach, militarized end of the conflict was very problematic and destabilizing, not only for South Caucasus, but for Eurasia in general. It just creates a very dangerous precedent. You are listening to Suwana Region Radio on independent and listener-sponsored KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, 99.5 Ridgecrest China Lake, and streaming live on kpfk.org. I am Ankin Antaram, my co-host is Adrina Gregorian, and we are analyzing the September 2021 Karabakh War between Armenia and Azerbaijan with Professor Anna Ohanian, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Stonehill College, and she is the author of the book The Neighborhood Effect, The Imperial Roots of Regional Fracture in Post-Communist Eurasia. Uh, I know that this warfare was a little bit different because of drones. Mm. Can you unpack a little bit about the use of drones and how that made this specific conflict very Mm. important for international community to take a look at? Because the drone warfare, how does that play into the peace process? And also how do the POWs play a role in the peace process? And why are these things still a problem now? I think the use of drone technology during this war was was a first in this conflict. Last time during the first Nagorno-Karabakh war, both sides actually were militarily much weaker, politically, financially weaker. These were new young states. They were heavily reliant on the technology that the Russian army has left behind. But since then, Azerbaijan did pour in a lot of its oil petrodollars into acquiring drone technology from Turkey. And drones are actually much cheaper than some of the military technology that Armenia had acquired from Russia. 
and they were very effective, a lot more effective uh, in actually preventing, in not allowing Armenia, especially keeping the tanks stationed, as well as other artillery. So the Western analysts were looking at this war as the future of warfare because of the use of the drone technology. And drone technology has been used initially by United States. The United States is known to have engaged in attacks and uh, using drone technology in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, but usually it has to have the permission of that country. But overall, now I think that genie is out of the bottle. There are very few international legal regulations on the use of drone technology because uh, drone technology, uh, it, these are unmanned instruments of warfare. And again, technology is ahead of the regulation. Some argue that drones save lives because then conflict parties don't have to use their soldiers. But at the same time, we should keep in mind that they make lower the threshold. They make it easier to engage in warfare. So the drone, the use of drone technology in war situations is very, very problematic. There is also the question of whether or not that technology changes the rules of warfare. So yeah, there are all kinds of problems, challenges, legal challenges, political challenges that are here. But I think the West simply really, actually many have looked at this war making as a model in planning and thinking about war for the future of warfare. In regards to the prisoners of war, Azerbaijan really captured Armenian soldiers and civilians and has been releasing them, trying to use them, negotiating with Armenia. Some prisoners were returned in exchange of maps of mines um, that exist in the uh, territory surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh. So I, I don't know enough about what has been going on behind closed doors and negotiations, but those are the swaps that have been taking place. Armenia giving maps of landmines to Azerbaijan and Azerbaijan returning. But overall, I think the Russia negotiated agreement called specifically for the return uh, of prisoners of war. And it's it really has not been happening. But again, this the prisoners of war is not a sort of a de- the separated insular development. It's really linked to Azerbaijani's coercive strategy since the war, because Aliyev regime does want to use its victory and milk its victory for domestic purposes. Aliyev, in his rhetoric, he has been actually making claims uh, or at least insinuating Armenian territories, Azerbaijani territory. So this is a really whole new area uh, in terms of the international law, because uh, Aliyev, at least in his informal statements, is making uh, claims, territorial claims on, on Armenia proper. So his position has been, while he engaged in the warfare, saying, well, the peace process did not work, so I need to restore Azerbaijan's territorial integrity, hence the war. But it is really becoming clear that Azerbaijani Aliyev's strategy is actually quite coercive, that it is a petro-state, and Aliyev has regime survival is a key concern for him. Uh, Resolve conflict is essential for autocrats, for regime survival, number one. Number two, unblocking a Regional connectivity would really give a big boost to Armenia's young democracy, to Georgia's young democracy. And there is also a political system fight here as well. Uh, Aliyev's authoritarian model would be up against strengthening the democracies. Uh, Regional unblocking would give 
economic dividends for the states. And uh, I, I don't think Aliyev is interested. I think that's what he's fighting. There is also regional unblocking also creates an opportunity for India, Iran, Georgia connection all the way to Europe. That also would elevate Armenia's position as a transit route. And all these border incursions that Azerbaijan is doing on Armenian territory is meant to create stressors for Armenia and put doubts as to whether Armenia is a safe transit passage for economic activity. So this is definitely a political systems game that needs to be seen as such. It's not only about Nagorno-Karabakh. It's very much about Azerbaijan, Aliyev, trying to sabotage prospects of economic development in neighboring democratic societies. Anna, you have written, quote, conflicts ending in negotiated settlements on average have more durable and sustainable outcomes, end of quote. What is your assessment a year later? Have the negotiations proven to be fragile or sustainable? How does it compare to your assessment a year ago? And what post-war conditions has it created? There are a lot of quantitative studies of similar armed conflicts. Most databases will range from end of World War II up until now. And there is a very clear trend that those conflicts that end through negotiated settlements they're more likely to last as a solution. They're more likely to unlock authoritarian developments. They're more likely to produce sustainable peace outcomes. Conflicts that do end through militarized outcomes, they actually deepen authoritarianism in the victorious state. I've mentioned this in my early writing as well. We see that tendency in, uh, inside Azerbaijan right now. So in that respect, in terms of what's going on, since Russia brokered the uh, ceasefire, uh, that agreement is actually a very complicated agreement. Um, it's not a peace agreement. There's no consensus among analysts and academics as to how to describe this agreement. It was a ceasefire agreement, attended the fighting, but it has very long-term uh, implications in it. Uh, it does have some really progressive elements in it. Uh, for example, it stipulates that the region needs to be unblocked. Right now, Armenia is blockaded by Turkey and Azerbaijan, with which it is in conflict. The only two borders that Armenia has that are functioning and open are Georgia and Iran. So this agreement calls for unblocking, and meaning that Russia seems to be, at least on paper, interested in connectivity. And it also has a stipulation that Russian forces need uh, to provide safe passage for Azerbaijan to connect with its with Nahijevan, uh, which is in the west of Armenia, with which uh, Azerbaijan is not sharing a border. So as an agreement, it's so complicated, it's progressive in some respects, ironically. Also, it doesn't mention anything about the status. It doesn't mention the status of Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, doesn't mention the status of Nagorno-Karabakh as an entity, which is the issue at the heart of this conflict. Our Russian diplomats have been arguing that, uh, as well as Western diplomats, actually, that the status issue can be addressed later when there is some coexistence between the communities. So while on the one hand, the agreement is so expansive, this regional unblocking and connectivity, all of those are great, but the devil is in the details. And unfortunately, 
to implement that agreement, you do need a very strong civil society. You do need targeted funding that need to go to support projects, cross-border activities between Armenians and Azerbaijanis, for example. But Russia lacks the funding as well as the capacities, I would argue, in supporting those kinds of projects. My point of comparison is with the Balkans. In the aftermath of the signing of the Dayton Accords, with such clarity on the ground, political clarity, it was very difficult to bring these communities together. European funding, European logistics, European civilian administrators, the know-how of peace building played a huge role in healing as much as possible wounds and keeping and creating the divisions inside Bosnia-Herzegovina, as well as with its neighbors. And none of that institutional infrastructure right now exists in Nagorno-Karabakh or Saran. Right now, the agreement most importantly introduced Russian peacekeepers into the region, into Nagorno-Karabakh, as well as Armenia. Well, there are all kinds of uh, security agreements between Armenia and Russia. Uh, During the war, Russia played it cool and did not involve, arguing that our security agreements do not cover Nagorno-Karabakh. They cover only Russia-Armenia relations. Armenia is part of the Russia-led CSTO. So security and Russia's response to NATO, much weaker. Okay, I could buy the argument, Russian arguments uh, of inactivity during the war in terms of direct support for Armenians. But after the war is transpiring, is that Russia either is unwilling or uh, lacks the capacities of implementing its own agreement. Since that agreement, Azerbaijan actually holds nearly 200 hostages, prisoners of war from Armenia, even though the agreement stipulated the hostages and prisoners of war need to be returned. That did not happen. Uh, since then, Azerbaijan has returned, I don't know how many, but majority of that 200 are still in Azerbaijan. Uh, Since the signing the agreement, Azerbaijani forces actually advanced into Armenian sovereign territory, while border delimitation between the two countries is an issue that needs to be dealt with. Um, As with any cases, the border emerged after the Armenian losses in the war. This is the Soviet-era border that now became an international border. So border delimitation is needed, absolutely. But what is happening on the ground, it's not definitely border delimitation because it's very coercive. You have Azerbaijani soldiers inside Armenian territory, and Russia has not uh, been doing much on that in terms of didn't even side with the West, which would have been a strategic win for Russia to really come out and clearly say that this is an encroachment into Armenia's territorial sovereignty. This is a phenomenon called borderization, creeping annexation, which also Russia applies in the case of Georgia. So that's also problematic. On the one hand, there is all this talk of regional integration and unblocking that both the Russian elite as well as President Aliyev is the only one mostly speaking for Azerbaijan. So there is that talk that they will present to international audiences. But internally and within the region, Azerbaijani policies have been very coercive, very destabilizing. And in that respect, it is appearing that Russia does not have the levers and the tools to push back and implement its agreements. It's the the very agreement that it negotiated. There are negotiations happening for to unblock the region, there is a committee that is created in which Armenians and Azerbaijani diplomats are participating uh, with the Russian sponsorship. But those conversations have been 
pretty lacking transparency, unclear what's happening there. Armenian government pretty closely works with the Russian government, perhaps not now and then calling for international support, but there is need for transparency over the peace processes. And Armenian position lately has been that unless the prisoners of war are returned, uh, Armenia will not engage in the peace process. Uh, as Armenia lost the the war and the territories that it was controlling around Nagorno-Karabakh. Now, Armenian international border uh, with Azerbaijan, actually, the roads go through Azerbaijani territory. This is a Soviet-era administrative border, which was not an issue when both Armenia and Azerbaijan were part of Soviet Union. But now uh, they're independent country. So I actually traveled in that road. Russian forces are stationed there, but uh, that road has been connecting one Armenian community to another, to its southern tip, through Azerbaijani territory. That has been actually open up until recently. Azerbaijan decided just close it. I just really, for about four days, parts of Armenia were disconnected from one another because Azerbaijan blocked it. I'm not convinced that it's the Russian security forces that are providing security. I think it's Azerbaijani political will in letting that road to function. Something, some diplomatic opportunity could be built around it. So yeah, overall as to how well the peace process is going, I don't think there's much of a peace process has been happening beyond what's going on between Armenian and Azerbaijani diplomats in that working groups. But again, I think that process has been stalled uh, because Azerbaijani policies have been so coercive. It, Azerbaijan still holds prisoners of war and continues to really coercive policies. Uh, with Armenia, pushing for a quote-unquote peace on its terms, comprehensive peace agreement, uh, which essentially means for Armenia to recognize Armenian populated Nagorno-Karabakh as part of Azerbaijan, and Aliyev uh, does not even says anything about the status beyond cultural autonomy, and we don't know what that means. There's no promise of what political scientists would call accommodative capacities. There's a lot of data that civil wars and ethnic conflicts go down or have been going down over time, over the past three, four decades, because uh, minority group rights protections have been increasing because of peacekeeping, because of growing democratization, and some power sharing arrangements. All of these things are not possible inside Azerbaijan right now. So giving any status, recognizing any political rights for Nagorno-Karabakh inside Azerbaijan is just simply impossible because Azerbaijani government does not even guarantee rights for Azerbaijani citizens. So there is a very deep contradiction there. I don't think uh, Aliyev regime is a genuine player for a peaceful resolution of this conflict. It's continuing. Aliyev is continuing with coercive policies around this Nagorno-Karabakh, which again, uh, group rights being central in this conflict. And this is not unique uh, to Nagorno-Karabakh. I think with the collapse of the Soviet Union, disintegration, the West rushed in recognizing political boundaries of the 15 republics and did not provide any protections, was not strong enough on pushing for group protections, protection of minorities in these new states. And that is one of the reasons as to why you saw the string of armed conflicts that emerged as a result of the dissolution of the Soviet Union which many argue was peaceful dissolution of Soviet Union, not so peaceful if you ask the minorities in some of these conflict areas. In this process, Armenia has lost, as you said, many of the territories. 
And what remains of the Republic of Nagorno-Karabakh now is a fraction of what it was, in which case a huge refugee population was created into Armenia, where the civil societies ended up taking care of. Now, we're summarizing modern day context, but can you connect to how this recent Armenian-Azerbaijani conflict, how genocide is at the core of all of this, how we are not experiencing something new in history, we're only experiencing the continuation of something that had started in, you know, World War One and prior to that, and uh, as most of the audience who may not be Armenian may know that Armenian genocide is so closely linked to so many of the issues we care about. And perhaps you can explain why today's war is in fact connected to that and why it's still an important issue to us today. And that is a really important question to ask, considering that during the war, Turkey backed Azerbaijani offensive. Turkey regularly pushed for joining the existing OSC Minsk group as a co-chair, which was quite, I can't find the word for it, because Turkey was essentially trying to bomb its way into a peace process. So, and Turkey's role in the South Caucasus has been And Turkey's full entry of the region has been blocked by Armenia because uh, Turkey remains an unrepentant power, meaning that Turkey has never accepted the genocide. It is a denialist power. And in a way that really blocked uh, Turkey's full uh, capacity, diplomatic capacity, Turkey could have used soft power if it accepted the genocide. Relations would have improved much sooner, much quicker, and perhaps Turkey would have been a political presence in the region. Now, Turkey does have connections, obviously, open border uh, with Georgia and deep economic integration with Georgia, as well as very deep connections with Azerbaijan. But it's Russia that is much more fully fledged in the region. In regards as to why the connections with the genocide I mentioned a little bit the pre-Soviet, the imperial roots of this conflict. There were clashes between Armenian community and Azerbaijanis who were known at the time as Caucasian Tatars. But in that period, essentially, Armenian community, uh, right during the World War One and before the Soviet Union, coalesced and essentially collected these lands. Armenia was a traumatized community having experienced the genocide in the Ottoman Empire. So it very much was political scientists sometimes refer to these regions as shutter zones. They're in between two imperial powers. But being a victim community and having no recognition that genocide had taken place left this very real fear of insecurity having very real fears that Turkey could do this again. Uh, For a long time, actually, when I have been looking at this conflict, I always resisted calls for connecting to genocide and Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. I would uh, always say that that these are two different, qualitatively different events. But even before the war, I started thinking, especially after the democratic decline in Turkey, already fragile democratic institutions gave in after the failed coup in 
2016 in Turkey did started detouring on the peace process with Kurds. Turkey went from trying to have zero problems with its neighbor's policy to now being involved in Libya, having presence in Syria, Mediterranean, it's creating ripples, uh, quite dangerous ones. So it was becoming pretty clear that as an unrepented power and continued military cooperation with Azerbaijan, which is at war with Armenia, this conflict was very difficult to see as a very localized affair as opposed to an extension of deeper geopolitical conflict complex. Actually, genocide is not a conflict. I should clarify that. So that's only one of the many connections as to why. And Turkey's such active role in sub- providing the armed drone technology to Azerbaijan. Actually, there is evidence that they've actually manned and Turkish pilots have been involved in the war. It is broadly documented that Turkey did bring in mercenaries from Syria to fight on Azerbaijan's side, which essentially created the very dangerous possibility that this conflict was being linked to a conflict cluster in the Middle East. So it really changed the structure of this conflict, that this could become a proxy war if it was not for Russia's ability to end the fighting. So a Turkish role was was very, very destabilizing, to say the least. Having said that, looking into the future, I I see no alternative to uh, engaging, opening diplomatic channels with Turkey for economic, political reasons, simply looking as to how United States pulled out of Afghanistan after spending billions of dollars there, uh, meaning that the Western support of this liberal rules-based world order, one that protects minorities, one that protects negotiated settlements, that system is quite weak right now. Armenia does need to diversify its diplomatic capacities. So it's it's one issue that Armenia is now faced with, how to talk to a party that is a non-repentant genocidal power. But it's something that Armenian political process will have to, to deal with domestically. You are listening to Suwana Region Radio on independent and listener-sponsored KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, 99.5 Ridgecrest China Lake, and streaming live on kpfk.org. I am Ankini Antaram, my co-host is Adrina Gregorian, and we are analyzing the September 2021 Karabakh War between Armenia and Azerbaijan, with Professor Anna Ohanian, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Stonehill College. And she's the author of the book, The Neighborhood Effect, The Imperial Roots of Regional Fracture in Post-Communist Eurasia. You mentioned civil societies. Can you talk a little bit about the importance role that civil society organizations in Armenia have played within the context of this war? Civil society in general is so critical to state building processes to to begin with. And very often, unfortunately, when you're in a post-communist world, 
uh, civil society has gained this negative connotation, partly because of the rise of right-wing voices. They equate civil society to all things West, to all things real liberal. They will slap the Soros label to it. And this pattern emerged from Hungary, I believe, linking to George Soros, the philanthropist who poured so much money into post-Soviet states in building, in opening up the societies, providing funding for civil society development. But I think it is important for all of these countries, democratizing forces constantly to remind that to decolonize civil society, that civil society existed in these countries when they were imperial minorities. The reason that these countries are here today is partly because they survived as imperial minorities through their self-governance and self-organizing. So it's strategically important for civil society voices in countries such as Ukraine, Georgia, Armenia to signal, to clearly signal that civil society is not a Western import into this region, that there are deep legacies of civic organizing that exist in these regions, and that civil society is deeply intertwined into the fabric of the societies. In regards to the war, and I'm assuming you're referencing the 44-day war in Nagorno-Karabakh. On the side of the Armenian community, I think looking at how civil society organized in diaspora, as well as in Armenia, uh, at the beginning, civil society was very active in uh, organizing and providing for social needs of the communities, for social needs of the refugees that started coming from Nagorno-Karabakh. And the fact that while during the war, Turkey-backed Azerbaijani offensive really did attack civilian installations, which are war crimes. The, the fact that community mobilized and moved the civilians out of the front lines, out of Nagorno-Karabakh, was partly because of organizing of civil society groups in addition to the governmental efforts. So civil society also played a role in signaling, creating the human rights messaging worldwide that there are human rights violations happening. And in that respect, civil society role as any society that is in war, as any society that is trying to recover from war, the role of civil society is critical. On the side of Azerbaijan, I cannot comment Comment, simply because uh, it is an authoritarian state, it is a petro state. There were voices, peace activists that spoke up against the war, and they were very quickly silenced. My colleagues do tell me that there's not much space even for mothers uh, who lost uh, their sons in this war to grieve. There's just such uh, sort of uh, emphasis on this war victory advanced by the Aliyev government that there's not even a room for the mothers in that side to grieve. There's no, there are no freedoms for a civil society or even individual freedoms in many respects. So the picture is very different and civil society played an important role uh, also in Nagorno-Karabakh, again, in social service organizing for the community essentially to come together after that 44-day war, civil society was front and center in addition to the governmental efforts of rebuilding. And in closing, Anna, looking at Armenia internally, post-war Armenia, how has the war affected its democratic institutions, but also what has it meant for its internal politics? Sure. 
war is a stressor to new democracies, to nascent democracies, actually, as well as for authoritarian war loss in particular. So immediately after the war, there was a lot of public outcry, actually not a lot of street protests against Nikol Pashinyan, the prime minister, who also led the Velvet Revolution in 2018. Many, many analysts thought it was worrisome that whether Armenia's democracy would survive. The war loss and this heightened security uh, situation created an opening for this security versus democracy trade-off to re-emerge in Armenia, that democracy would be lost for the security concerns. Right-wing players did coalesce pretty quickly. What has transpired since then, and actually I've written for Carnegie, arguing that Armenia needs to solve this political crisis that emerged after the war, that it needs to solve this political crisis through the ballot box. At the time when the political crisis broke out, uh, the groups that were pushing for Pashinyan's resignation were calling for creation of the committee of professionals, of experts, of elderly, transitional government, all of these were uh, very dangerous because they essentially mounted to a power grab through the back door. So I think the Armenian people should be proud that they have negotiated a political crisis through the ballot box. Uh, Armenian political elite forces have agreed on snap elections, which took place on June 20th. And after that, there, there were no protests after that. I think the elections were effective in ending the political crisis that was unfolding in the streets. And again, uh, to the credit of Armenian people, It'd be hard to find many countries where security is so heightened, although I'm realizing this is a predicament of many post-communist countries, that with the heightened security issues in the background, Armenia did vote for democratic processes to solve its political crisis. While there's a lot of resentment and frustration with Nikol Pashinyan government, I think the, the fact that Armenians voted for him, he was campaigning for stability. He was campaigning for, uh, he would use statements like creating an era of stability in the region. The alternative candidate was, it was Robert Kocharyan. He was the Armenia's second president who, with a very dubious uh, I don't want to go into the weeds, but very dubious track record when it came to human rights. And uh, he did campaign openly that he would uh, limit civil society in Armenia. And um, some of the vote that went for Pashinyan, many argue, was a vote against uh, Robert Kocharyan rather than for Pashinyan. But overall, I think Armenia voted for democracy, for democratic process with Azerbaijani soldiers inside its territory. I think this is a huge accomplishment as to how strongly Armenians felt about maintaining and keeping their, demo, their political system open and participatory. So as a democratic society, it is going to, it will have a preference to shy away from war. There is a new momentum for compromise. But uh, again, it isn't even the conversations, there is a talk between engagement of Turkey and Armenia. But all of that, again, there is a window that can be realized, but there's still lots of unknowns. Again, uh, Azerbaijan Ali of government in particular is pushing against this democratic system, not just Nagorno-Karabakh. Anna Ohanian, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Anna Ohanian is a Richard B. Finnegan Distinguished Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Stonehill College and a two-times Fulbright Scholar in the South Caucasus. 
Cesare Taraf, Russia Aboard, Driving Regional Fracture in the Post-Communist Eurasia and Beyond, and her latest, The Neighborhood Effect, The Imperial Roots of Regional Fracture in Post-Communist Eurasia. Professor Ohanian is also a non-resident senior scholar in the Russia and Eurasia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. A special thanks to Sad Dangre for production assistance, to Swana Collective member Soraya Zarouk, and to our board operator Kiana Williams. Swana Region Radio podcasts are posted on anchor.fm slash swana, on Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. The broadcast version are archived on kpfk.org. Just search for Swana Region Radio. You can find us and get in touch with us on Facebook and Instagram. On behalf of the Swana Region Radio Collective and my co-host Adrina Gregorian, I am Anki Neantaram.